because your abbot is interested in having different schools of the Buddhist teaching presented here at this center, which I think is um, not only wonderful, but also necessary, I will talk to you about the way we use the meditation teaching in the Theravadan tradition. When I say we use, I should actually modify this and say how the Buddha in his discourses which have been preserved for us in the Pali Canon has described the path of meditation. And some of it will be familiar to you, some of it may be quite unfamiliar, and after I've spoken for a while, I'm going to invite questions. I'm always happy to answer if I can. So we'll have a look at the way the Pali Canon, as we have it today in English, shows us a very circumscribed path of meditation. And I have chosen that as a subject because I'm assuming, and I hope correctly, that all of you are meditators. Most of you, I'm sure this is correct. We have two directions in meditation, calm and insight. Innumerable methods. The Buddha himself taught 40 methods. Some are strictly for calm, some are strictly for insight, some are for both. The method is a method by any name. It doesn't change from being a method. I describe the method as a key. If you want to unlock a door, you have to keep the key in your hand steady long enough to find the keyhole. Once having found the keyhole, one hopes that one would have enough sense to unlock the door. And having unlocked the door, one would have enough courage to go over the threshold and find oneself in a mansion which has eight chambers. Having unlocked this door several times, one can throw the key away, the method, because the door stays open. The method which I have, or the pathway which I have just very briefly mentioned, is a pathway of calm, samatha in Pali, or samadhi. The eighth step on the Noble Eightfold Path, summer samadhi, right concentration. It is the means. Concentration, calm, is the means. Insight is the goal. 
inside in Pali is vipassana or panya wisdom or both preferably we use the path of calm to gain insight but we do not expect to have perfect calm before we gain any insight a little bit of calm creates a little bit of insight and a little bit of insight creates a little bit of calm so we obviously practice both most people come to meditation because they are not satisfied and contented with what they have the material world cannot satisfy so it's a wise step to take but many people or most maybe come to meditation with an expectation the expectation of gaining something peace calm harmony joy something new something better something profound something esoteric something transcendental whatever any one of these pick the one you like the expectation itself is already a deterrent to meditation we can either expect or we can concentrate you can't do both <laughs> <laughs> and not only that but expectation on the other side of the same coin has disappointment built in because what we're going to get maybe is probably something entirely different from what we were imagining and the other aspect of this difficulty is also that if we want to get something out of meditation it doesn't work we're going to get rid of everything that we're carrying around in our minds and then it works so if we have a hope and an expectation that we're going to become calm and joyful it won't work but it's possible to do it without all the proliferations in the mind the reason it's so difficult and if there's any meditator here who doesn't think it's difficult raise your hand right now anybody <laughs> oh great wonderful <laughs> that's lovely <laughs> so we have one who doesn't think it's difficult <laughs> the reason that it is difficult for most people is because we have an illusion of me and this me illusion can only be supported as long as we're thinking and as long as we're thinking we're not meditating and when we stop thinking there's nobody there to tell us that this is really me and that's why it's so difficult to stop thinking but enough practice will get one there 
because the mind eventually becomes tired of all that thinking and rummaging around and getting new ideas. It eventually says, well, all right then, I'll actually attend to the meditation subject. <laughs> and it will once in a while. And if it does, we have immediate benefits. In fact, the way this looks is that there are five factors of meditation which counteract our five hindrances. Now these five hindrances are unfortunately difficulties that all of us are beset with. Nobody is exempt. Some of, some of us have more of one and some of us have more of another. But we've all got all of them. And a meditator who is interested in the spiritual path and the spiritual life will try to counteract these hindrances in daily life. It's a difficult, almost impossible undertaking without the support system of the meditation. The meditation is an automatic purification system and without that all our endeavors and even all our striving, even all our understanding that we might bring to bear upon the counteract, upon counteracting our hindrances is uphill labor. Naturally we are not exempt from doing it in daily life. But with the support of the automatic purification system, it feels as if the wheels have been oiled. The very first benefit which we get immediately by just sitting down, crossing our legs, and having the intention of watching our meditation subject is an antidote for our third hindrance, which is called sloth and torpor. Sloth is in the body, torpor is in the mind, and the body usually follows the dictates of the mind. So when the mind has torpor in it, the body is equally slothful. The Buddha compared sloth and torpor with being in prison. Now we are not only having a mind of torpor in meditation, we have it in daily life. We call it procrastination, or we call it lack of time, or we call it no energy, or we call it any kind of justifications, having to have a rest, or having to take time off, whatever we like to call it. The mind is not willing to actually apply itself to whatever it is that it needs to apply itself to. So it is compared to being in prison and it's also compared by the Buddha to a little water pond which is muddy. When the mind is not full of energy, it feels foggy, muddy. It feels as if one can't quite see 
what one really needs to do. The initial application, which is in Pali Vitaka, which is the very first aspect of all meditation, the initial application to the meditation subject is the antidote, which is automatic. The antidote against this, I'm going to do it tomorrow. I haven't got time. It's too late. It's too early. I'm too full. I'm too empty. There's too much noise. It's too quiet. All the excuses, which are miles long, and I think everybody knows them. And from your smiling faces, I can see that you, we have all used them. <laughs> Actually sitting down doing it counteracts that. And as we continue to sit down and do it, and this is why this, a center such as this is of such great value, because what else would you be doing here? In the evening you sit down and do it, and in the morning you sit down and do it. That's what the center is for. And so with that, we have immediately the purification system started. It's like an automatic washing machine. It's tedious to wash everything by hand. It can be done, but it takes much longer and much harder work. Then, when we have one moment of concentration on the meditation subject, it's one moment of purification. Because we can either be concentrated or we can have discursive or negative thinking. Luckily, we can't do both. So it's either purification, which means being right there in the moment, or it's the opposite. Again, just sitting down to meditate brings both those benefits, and even just one moment is already a purification system. Sloth and torpor in daily life has been described by the Buddha as a hindrance which we can counteract by knowing more about the Dhamma, learning more about the teaching, and also the common antidote for all five hindrances, which are noble friends and noble conversation. The noble friends which we can find are those that are our companions on the spiritual path. And the noble conversations are those conversations which are uplifting and elevating to the mind because they show us a different reality and not the marketplace consciousness with which we have to deal in everyday life. Now, having sat down and trying to put the mind on, we use the breath. I'll use the word breath as a meditation subject. I don't know what you use, but breath is traditional. And trying to put the mind on the breath, then being able to actually stay there is called the continued application, vichara. The first two aspects of meditation are vitaka vichara, 
vichara is the continued application. And it is compared to hitting the bell or the gong and then the tone which remains, staying on the breath. That one counteracts effectively our fifth hindrance. Uncertainty or sometimes called skeptical doubt. Now we need to be able to distinguish between doubt and inquiry. Inquiry is what the Buddha advocated. Everybody should inquire into the teaching. But doubt is the opposite of trust and confidence. And if we have skeptical doubt, it is compared to, by the Buddha, to traveling in the desert without a road map, without provisions, going around in circles, and in the end being overrun by bandits. Most of us have probably tried looking here, looking there, because we doubted what we heard. But once we hear the truth, comes the moment of total surrender. Without total surrender, neither meditation nor the spiritual path function. It's a total surrender of one's own opinions, viewpoints, attitudes. It's a surrender of one's ideas, of one's hopes, of one's ways of becoming someone and being someone. The surrender of just being there. If we are able to stay on the meditation subject for some time, the mind gains confidence. <laughs> it recognizes the fact that it's possible, and because it recognizes that it's possible, it gains self-confidence. It says, aha, I thought it was impossible, but it seems I can do it. And it gains confidence in the Buddha's words because the Buddha said one can do it. And because that arises in the mind, there is then the ability for devotion and surrender. Devotion is a matter of the heart. Understanding is a matter of the mind. We need both. We all have heart and mind. If we use both, we're walking on two legs. If we only use one, we're hopping. And it's very tedious and also it doesn't really get us anywhere. It's so slow. In our Western society, we have been trained to use our mind. From kindergarten on, 
figuring things out, retaining information, using that information for all sorts of worldly purposes, primarily, of course, to make money, make a living, but not only for that, to advance technology. We've been trained well in using the mind. The training of the heart has been lacking profoundly. We've got to do it now. We're left to our own devices. The Buddha's instructions are clear and precise, and we can use them. But we have to recognize that this is work that needs to be done. There are different aspects of training the heart, and I won't be able to discuss all of them, but one of them is the aspect of devotion and surrender. Devotion can only arise if we love something, and surrender likewise. Therefore, the Buddha's path needs to be understood and loved. Our spiritual path, our spiritual training, is the closest relationship we can ever have in this life. It's ourselves. If we have a relationship with another person, and we understand the person, but we don't love them, it's a short-lived relationship. By the same token, if we love the person but have absolutely no understanding, it's also not going to be successful. Both have to be included. By the same token, that applies to our own spiritual path. We have to understand what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're doing it, where it's going to lead us, what the Buddha's thoughts were when he gave those instructions. And we have to love it. Love it because we can see it as the transcendental way out of all dukkha. Everybody know the word dukkha? Yeah? No? Yeah? Okay. Everybody knows the feeling. <laughs> that love then brings us to the point where we continue to inquire, but we no longer doubt. And the second step on the meditative path, the continued application to the meditation subject, brings that about. Skeptical doubt is also compared to a water pond in which many water plants are growing. One can't see one's likeness. There is no mirror. When we are full of skeptical doubt, we're usually full of dislike. A person who finds it difficult to love finds it easy to doubt. Inquiry and doubt are not the same. 
we need to find that out for ourselves what it means to inquire and what it means to doubt these are the first two factors of the meditation which every meditator is acquainted with one tries to go on the meditation subject and then eventually is able to stay on it at least for a little while and as you can see already not only does that produce some calm but it has a purifying effect and because it has that purifying effect we can gain some insight into ourselves the Buddha said the whole of the universe O monks lies in this fathom long body and mind one fathom long used to be a measurement the whole of the universe is to be found in body and mind if we understand ourselves we can stand the whole universe everything has the same characteristics so we gain insight into our difficulties and their overcoming having been able to go this far with the meditation now comes the moment when we can put the key in the keyhole and unlock the door the, the door which leads us across the threshold where we no longer need the method but can actually become absorbed and that's why these steps that now arise are called the meditative absorptions in Pali jhana j-h-a-n-a they are not a goal in themselves but they are the means towards our goal the first thing that arises at that time and from a practical standpoint it means that the breath becomes so fine that it's hard to find and quite often meditators will then take a deep breath where's my breath that means they had the keyhole already but they quickly go back to the key hmm. or they may say oh what was that well that stops the concentration too the breath becomes so fine that it's hard to find at that time because the mind has become concentrated enough to be subtle enough so that the breath does likewise the reason we have traditionally always used the breath is because mind and breath are intrinsically connected at that time what arises is called in Pali Piti, P-I-T-I, not pity, not the English pity, Piti. And it is a delightful sensation. Now, everybody knows that we're not meditating because of a delightful sensation or forgetting a delightful sensation. But it's one of the rungs on the ladder. It's a very first one. And it has an enormously beneficial result. It counteracts 
very strongly our most unpleasant hindrance, ill will, anger, hate, dislike, rejection, resistance, whichever way you like to call it. In the translations of the Pali Canon, it's usually called ill will. We can call it hate. This is a very unpleasant hindrance that humanity is beset with. And nobody who is not at least one step before full enlightenment has it. And once we get that clear in our minds, we no longer feel like blaming anybody because of that nor do we feel like blaming ourselves. And never again should we be surprised at the condition our world is in. Ill will is the second hindrance of all human beings who are not one step before enlightenment. And of those, I would say, there are very few around. Pity is a delightful sensation. It's sometimes translated as bliss or rapture, but these are big words and give an indication as if it was something out of this world, which it isn't. It's quite in this world. It's a worldly sensation. But because we have this most pleasant sensation, It is impossible at that time to have any ill will, which is obvious. But there is a residual effect. And this is one of the most important aspects of the meditative absorption. The residual effect which shows itself in the mind in daily living. Namely, that we realize at all times that we can get back to that. We have found a home for the mind. Now, our bodies, fortunately, all have a home. So when we are out in the cold or in the heat, in the rain or in the sleet, we know we can take the body home. There will be a roof over our head which will protect us from the inclement weather. There will be a chair to sit in and a bed to sleep in. There will be a kitchen to cook our meals. The body is fine. Well, what about the mind? When the body sits in the easy chair, is the mind easy too? When the body sleeps on the best and most expensive mattress even, the mind dreams. Anything we can do for the body does not apply to the mind. The home that the body has is not the home for the mind. It's only when we're able to leave 
the thinking and judging and hoping and wishing behind. Our plans for the future, our memories of the past, all our ideas, all our cares, all our worries, and actually go within and touch upon the purity which is within everybody's heart and mind that we have found that home. And knowing that during the day, all the difficulties which arise in daily living no longer have such a charge behind them. They just arise and cease. It doesn't mean that we have uprooted anger. That takes a little more than that. But we have cut it down. We can look at our own hearts and minds as if they were a garden. A garden in which flowers and weeds grow in profusion, fighting for the space, fighting for the nourishment out of the soil, fighting for the sun and the rain because they are in there together. If we have the ability to purify because of the meditation, we are cutting the weeds down. They become smaller, their roots become more puny, so one day we'll be able to uproot them a little more easily. At least at this point in time, they don't take out all the nourishment that is in the soil, nor do they hide the sun from the flowers. We can at least see the beauty that is in that garden. We get to that point in the meditation because of preceding purification. One of the most important books in Theravadan Buddhism is from the 5th century, the Visuddhimagga, written by a monk called Buddhaghosa, and Visuddhimagga means the path of purification. It is a commentary to the Buddha's teaching, and the whole of it is called the path of purification. We all carry this delight within. Nobody's without it. Not the worst criminal. Everyone has it. But we can't get at it because we're thinking. And when we're not thinking from morning to night, we might be dreaming from night to morning. <coughs> Once we stop thinking through the meditation practice and get to the point of concentration, the purification will take place automatically enough so that we can at least touch upon that pure space within. And touching upon that has the immediate effect of that inner delight. The Buddha compared anger to a bilious disease, the bile is coming up. Of course, only for the one who's angry not for the one we are angry at. He also compared it to picking up 
hot coals with one's bare hands and trying to throw them at somebody. Who gets burned first? The antidote is, of course, love and compassion. In daily confrontations and in meditation, loving kind of meditation, the substitution which is necessary in daily life in order to purify is the same substitution that we need to do in meditation when the mind goes all over the place coming distracted thinking planning hoping wishing remembering discussing judging liking and disliking we have to substitute with the meditation subject that's action of substitution is exactly the same action that we use in daily life to substitute anything that is angry negative with that which is loving and positive. However, as I said before, it's uphill labor. Having been able to touch upon that inner reality of purity, which brings with it the delightful sensation, that is automatic. And not only that, the word PT is not only translated as delight, it's also translated as interest. That's when most people get interested in meditation. That's when they start sitting. Where they don't make excuses anymore. Where things seem to become important. Where people realize that there is a different reality. That we do not have to stay with what I call the marketplace consciousness, that there is a different one. Of course, we haven't really touched it yet, but having experienced this very first step makes it quite clear that there is something there. There's another great benefit which arises out of this very first step. And mind you, this is only step number one of eight of eight more and more refined states of consciousness. Being able to experience inner delight makes it quite clear to us that what we have so far experienced in the world through our sense contacts, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and thinking has in no way satisfied us anywhere as completely as this experience. And we will therefore diminish our search for essential pleasure. That doesn't mean we can't enjoy anything anymore. It means we're going to diminish the search for it. We don't have to be out there trying to find something because we now know we carry it all within.
we may have, consciously or subconsciously, suspected that all along. We may even have read it somewhere, that we've got it all within. But we've got to find it. Where is it? It's all there. There's only one way to find it, and that's through meditation, through continual application, perseverance, patience, and determination. Meditation can never be an off-and-on affair. We don't eat occasionally. We eat every single day. The food for the body is important to keep the body alive. The food for the mind is even more important because mind is the master of this whole phenomena that we call me. Without the mind, nothing happens at all. If the mind hadn't said you should come here this evening, you wouldn't be here. The mind said to the body, come in, get in the car and go over there or walk over there. That's how you got here. Having been able to get this far in meditation, the interest arises to go further. Because every intelligent person will immediately know that we don't meditate in order to have delightful sensation. As nice as it is, everyone will realize there must be more. And so the path continues. Anger, hate, is an unpleasant emotion. And yet, if one has a great deal of that, one may be more prone to practice than if one has a lot of greed. One has either one or the other more. Now the people who have a lot of hate are not so easy to live with, nor are they easy for themselves to to live with themselves, find life quite difficult, but usually they'll practice because it's so unpleasant. People who have more greed than hate are much easier to live with. Greed promises something. There's going to be a fulfillment. If I'm going to get what I want, I'll be fine. That that isn't so only is found out afterwards and one has to get something new again. But at least such a person has always hope and a feeling of, it's going to be all right. They're much easier to live with. They find it easier to live with themselves, but they're not so prone to practice. They'll always have that little idea in the back of their minds, if I do it just a little cleverer, next time it's going to work. There are many next times, until one day one finds out there have been enough next times. It will never work. 
The world promises, but never keeps its promise. What we see in the world glitters like fool's gold. But when we then weigh it up, it doesn't have any real value. Because... (laughs) (laughs) You'd be surprised how many complaints you get about that. Because everything that we can gain from the world is completely impermanent. It keeps changing. The nicest pleasurable sensation that we can get, it will not remain. Therefore, we always have to get another one. Now, in meditation, I have said that PT is delightful sensation. And from a practical standpoint, when it does arise and then cease, the meditator has to say and know and realize that too is impermanent. But at least it is totally independent of outer conditions. (coughs) It only needs an inner condition the inner condition of concentration. Becoming independent of outer conditions is an enormous step towards freedom. We can never make outer conditions comply with our wishes. Unconditioned, but it is at least dependent only on ourselves. I have taken a long time to come this far, so I will just quickly tell you the remaining two factors of meditation which then counteract the remaining two hindrances. All of these arise together With that, the lightful sensation arises joy at the same time. It can't help it. Such a delightful sensation has to create joy. And joy very effectively counteracts our desire for sensual gratification. Now, what I've already mentioned with the first one, with the delightful sensation, they arise together, joy and delightful sensation, and they make it quite clear to the mind that we have never yet experienced anything that is qualitatively comparable to the joy and the delight which we experience in meditation. And because of that, our desire for sensual gratification diminishes. We can still enjoy a sunset. In fact, we will. We will still enjoy beautiful flowers. I've just been to the rose garden around here. It's really beautiful. 
some of the roses are outstanding. We will have sense contacts always. Our senses are with us, but they are a means for survival, and we have mistaken them for an amusement park. They are not meant to be that. They are meant to be for survival. Imagine how difficult it is to survive when you're blind or deaf or any of the senses missing. So we have it easy to survive. The enjoyment which we get from the sense contacts when we have become independent of them is much greater than before. That comes from the purity which has arisen. The purity which means in this case that we are grateful for that sense contact and that enjoyment but we don't want to keep it and we don't want to repeat it. It just is. In other words, we can be in the moment with it. And we don't have to put an embellishment and a proliferation around it where we think, how beautiful, I wonder if I can have that again. And therefore, the enjoyment is much stronger. We no longer depend on it. The desire for sensual gratification has been compared by the Buddha to being in debt. Like when you have a mortgage on a house, you have to pay to the bank every month with interest. If you're lucky and live long enough, you might pay it off. With the sense contacts, unless we stop our desire for them, for the gratification, we'll never live long enough to stop. We'll always be indebted to them. We're always going to send the senses out in order to bring enjoyment back. And because it will not stay with us, and because we need to reinforce the enjoyment, we also have to pay interest. This changes that whole syndrome. It changes it so completely and so markedly that an inner contentment arises. An inner contentment which brings self-confidence. Self-confidence that one is working towards freedom. The fifth one of the meditative factors is one-pointedness. Now, every meditator knows that without that there is no meditation. This one-pointedness is a companion to the other factors. Without it, nothing will happen. The more we have of it, the more one-pointedness we have, the better the meditation. This one-pointedness is the antidote for restlessness and worry. Restlessness is our search for fulfillment. And worry is our 
fear that we're not going to get what we want or that we're going to get what we don't want. It's a fear of the future which is insecure. Everybody's future is insecure. And our restlessness shows itself in our constant movement. Not just physical movement, but moving from one place to the next, from one thought to the next, from one person to the next, from one activity to the next. Restlessness is also, unfortunately, a human condition which is only completely eliminated one step before enlightenment. But at least we can diminish it and have a little more peace within. One-pointedness in the mind is, of course, easy to see the obvious antidote for that. Restlessness and worry has been compared by the Buddha with being a slave. We're being pushed around. Pushed around by our ideas, by our hopes, by our lack of fulfillment, by our searching, by our wanting, by our disliking. Being a slave is very uncomfortable. It's a total lack of freedom. The more we worry, the less freedom we have. The more restlessness we have, the less freedom we have. Again, the antidote for that in daily living is knowing more about the Dhamma, having wise people as one's companion, and having noble friends and noble conversation. The antidote for sensual desire for sensual gratification in daily life is analysis, insight. Seeing things the way they really are, not the way they appear to us, as if they are so immensely desirable. That in itself is a whole other teaching and it will take too long to go into detail on that. But in order to recapitulate, we have five factors of meditation. Initial application to the meditation subject, which counteracts sloth and torpor, procrastination, which is like being in prison. We have continued application to the meditation subject, which counteracts skeptical doubt, which is just like going in the desert without a road map. We have delight, which counteracts ill will, which is like a bilious disease. We have joy, which counteracts the desire for sensual gratification, which is like being in debt. And we have one-pointedness, which counteracts restlessness and worry, which is like being a slave. All of us are beset with those five hindrances. You can check it up afterwards, whether it's true or not. <laughs> some have this one more, some have another one more. And naturally, we will try to do something about them if we have a spiritual path in mind. But without the help <coughs> and without that foundation of getting in touch with that inner reality, 
the work is so difficult it hardly ever comes to fruition. I was told by your abbot to stop when I got hoarse. I'm starting to cough, so I'm going to stop. <coughs> and you can ask questions. trying to kind of get ourselves into the frame of mind of living in a Zen center again. We have this whole... I don't think I'm the right person to ask. I don't know what it means to have a three-month formal uh, Zen training. I don't know what that entails. Um, If you took a three-month meditation course in the Theravadan tradition, and you had a baby along and you were going to take turns like one day the father and one day the mother well it's possible but it's difficult I suppose Um, I would say that each one one and a half months (laughs) one the mother stay with the baby for months and a half and send the father to the training and then the father stay with the baby one and a half months and send the mother to the... But don't all three go there. I mean, that is possible. If the father is able, as I presume he is, to look after... What is one year? Oh, well. <laughs> I think we've missed that one, huh? <laughs> uh, I don't know how you're going to do that. <laughs> you don't either. <laughs> well, I can't figure it out. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes. When you are at work, you have to think. Otherwise, you're going to lose your job. (laughs) And uh, I can assure you that the greatest pragmatist and realist was the Buddha. So uh, there was no esoteric uh, uh, ideas in his mind. He said, we can go this path being ordinary, everyday kind of people. How to keep your meditative mind together? I can tell you that in one word, mindfulness, sati and pali. When you are, what is your job? What are you doing? 
Yogunus, um, when you are making a bed, making a bed, nothing else. When you are giving a person a glass of water, giving a glass of water, nothing else. Total mindfulness of the physical happening. Sounds easy, it's very difficult. But as you practice, you will find that your work seems less demanding and that your meditation works better. The Buddha said, who is not mindful of the body has not found the door to the deathless. The deathless is Nibbana. You have as a nurse innumerable physical actions to do. You get to that point in mind where you are totally concerned with the physical action and not thinking, how quickly can I do this so that I can do all these other things? <laughs> or why do I always get these jobs? Why doesn't somebody else do this? And all these thoughts that one has in the mind, but being with the physical action. Now, obviously, there are other things that a nurse has to do. He has to write up things and that. So you're const totally with that thought and nothing else. That brings the meditative mind into daily life, helps your meditation, and makes your job far easier to accomplish. And it's a, it is the Buddha said, the one way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of pain, grief, and lamentation, for the final elimination of all dukkha, for entering the noble path, for reaching Nibbana is mindfulness. The one way, Ekayana. So that is also in your job particularly useful. Anything else? Yes. Uh, this is sort of interesting, this question. Uh, I've heard a lot of older teachers, when I first started reading Buddhism, Buddha, maybe you know, a long time ago, stress going into the mountains to do really hard practice. Uh, and then recently a lot of teachers are saying just to stay married, to stick with your job, to remain in the world and keep practicing. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I would assume, without knowing, that those who told you to go into the mountains actually did go into the mountains. And those who tell you to stay married are actually married. <laughs> <laughs> it always is that way. Everybody teaches from what they're doing themselves. Um, all right, do you want to know about my own personal experience? Yeah, that'll help. Okay. <laughs> the real practice comes together when you don't have the responsibilities of raising a family and looking towards the emotions of others. Then you have the freedom to really sit with yourself only. That's why monks and nuns in the Buddhist dispensation, in the Theravadan dispensation, sorry, are not married. Now, in the Buddha's time, there were innumerable, innumerable lay people who were married and had families who practiced and 
came a long way. But their main focus of those that we know about, there where the stories are known to us, were towards finding the spiritual path and treading it. Going off into the mountains and, and being on your own, is that what you meant? Mm-hmm. Yes, everybody needs that at some stage in their life. Everybody needs it. One has to go away one time and really be by oneself and find out what that's all about. One doesn't have to live that way all the time. It's my own person. These are personal opinions, mind you. These are not the Buddha's, Buddha's words, <laughs> but everybody has to do it one time or another. And three months would be a minimum, I would say, to do that. It is... Three months at one time? Yes, yes, at a stretch, on one's own. And uh, away, completely away. And not even having contact of any sort. It really brings about a change. One sees oneself in a totally different way. See, this way, when we are together, we see ourselves relating to each other. But that's not in here. That's coming out. We're relating to each other. But when you're on your own, you've got to relate to this in there. There's nobody else to relate to. Maybe there's a little mouse somewhere. And you, you can't relate to this mouse for very long, you know. <laughs> I mean, she runs away again. So you relate to yourself and you find out totally different things. And then you actually know what our hindrances are. So it's, it's extremely important to do that. And it's also important to know that it's very difficult to practice when you have family responsibilities. It is difficult. It's much easier when you don't have that. So if you're willing to have that difficulty, then, because both are happening, the family life and the practice, then one has to accept the fact that, <coughs> the, that it is difficult. So. Yes? <coughs> you just made a comment that uh, when one gets a, you call it July, or delight or joy, then your uh, your desire for sensual gratification diminishes. In my experience is it's the opposite. <laughs> you know, I you know when I start to feel good in practicing, I want more, and I often more of what more gratification. So these things that are good you know good feelings outside of practicing, say in my relationship. Mm. I make more demands, you know, this is no good, meditation is better, you better watch out. <laughs> well, but if you know that meditation is better, then uh, why do you have unrealistic expectations? That's a good question. Find out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Find out. Mm? Okay, anything else? Yes. It's a quarter to nine. (laughs) 
they are all listed in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on the Foundations of Mindfulness, and they are casinas, which are color discs of different colors. They are meditations on the... Um, there are nine cemetery meditations. There are several ways of watching the breath. There are um, the, uh, the loving-kindness meditation. Then, what else is there? Nine, and then there's about eight casinas, eight of the color discs. Uh, I don't think that's going to do you any good. You've got to learn those. Somebody's got to teach you those. I mean, the enumeration of them isn't really helpful, is it? But the whole Pali Canon has been translated into English 100 years ago. It's all available, the whole thing. This one, this, these 40 different methods, by the way, I wouldn't advise to practice 40 different methods. <laughs> I would advise to practice one. Uh, it's called the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness, the most famous of the discourses of the Buddha. Nothing is more famous than that one. And it is um, a part of the middle and saying, the Majjhima Nikaya. And uh, you can get it from, well, most easily, I suppose, from the Pali Text Society, which is in London. But I presume that there is an outlet here in America would be highly unlikely that there wasn't. And uh, it's all translated and all available. And totally useless without a teacher. <laughs> yes? Uh, I spent some time up in the woods uh, alone. And when my mind got quiet enough, what I felt, maybe this is just the beginning stage or whatever, but that what seemed most urgent was seeing, forgetting my own stuff and, and realizing the world's on fire, you know, you know, in this modern age more so than ever. And that's, and that what is what gave me peace of mind. That you saw that the world was on fire. And that gave me peace of mind in that I could forget myself in that. Right. You know, my concerns don't matter. Right. Um, are these your words, the world's on fire, or did you take the Buddha's words? The world's on fire is, is a traditional phrase. That's right. What I thought was clarified. Yes, it's a, the Buddha said that we are like children playing in a house on fire, and we don't have enough sense to jump out because we want to keep our toys. Um, the world's on fire, so did that create in you the understanding to transcend the world? Well, my sense was uh, I just had to forget my... I mean, well, in a sense, there is this freedom in meditation, but, but on the other hand, there's lots of people who don't realize that, and they're all caught in this house. Mm -hmm. you know, so it seems like that's what matters. I can't act on that. I mean, it's a nice thought at the time, but it also made me feel very, very peaceful inside. The peacefulness arose because you were at that moment no longer concerned with the self, 
which um, applies to what I said earlier, namely that we have so much difficulty getting concentrated in meditation because only when we think do we have a support system for self. And when we don't need a support system for self, we can concentrate, we can meditate. And when we don't need a support system for self at all anymore, we actually have, can become quite peaceful and stay peaceful. But when you've had that realization that you're saying, which is absolutely correct, then there must be also, or there, presumably, there comes a follow-up from that. What do I do about it? So what do we do about it? Yeah. Well, what do you think we do about it? That's right. Be help. Be helpful to other people. Practice meditation to the point where it becomes quite apparent what it means to jump out of this house on fire and leave all the toys behind. That's what we're really trying to do get away from this house on fire. The Buddha also said, and uh, you are reminding me of that, <laughs> namely that if we were aware of what the world is like, we would be like a man who has his turban on fire. We would get rid of that immediately. We wouldn't run around with a turban on fire. But because we don't realize the implication, what it means to be in this world, because we are like <coughs> children, we are not awakened. The Buddha is also called the awakened one, because he woke up from this dream that we are in and saw the reality of how we, what, it, what it means to be in this world. Anything else? Yes. What was the, the outcome of the Buddhist nuns conference? Okay. Sorry? I still didn't hear you. A lasting effect into the future. That I can't answer. I can only tell you what came out of that Buddhist nuns conference. Is that all right? Okay. Uh, um, an international Buddhist women's organization called Sakyadita was um, uh, founded at that time. And this uh, international Buddhist women's organization is in that many countries where there were participants to the nuns' conference. And it has grandiose aims, this uh, conference, this uh, organization, uh, pr the primary aim, which I think is realizable, we can realize, is making uh, communication between Buddhist women more possible. And um, because there's a newsletter, uh, and um, which comes out, and it is uh, very interesting to read because it tells about Buddhist women's activities in many countries. Now, the other, uh, it's called Nibwa, N-I-B-W-A, Newsletter of International Buddhist Women's Association. And it comes from Thailand. And it's $10 a year. 
Um, and the other thing was to have a support system for Asian nuns, Buddhist nuns, who are totally under-supported and have very little in the way of livelihood and very little in the way of education. So that was another very important aspect. And then there's a whole list of others which I cannot now quote because I don't remember them, um, just offhand. But there's another conference this October in Bangkok. And uh, again, it, but it's called International Buddhist Women's Conference and not nuns, but Buddhist women. And um, it is, uh, I'll be going there. It is, uh, I think, important to have that kind of support for the nuns and also the communication amongst the Buddhist women. Anything else? Yes. Yeah, you've referred a lot to some of the uh, traditional scriptures, and I would like to hear you say a little bit about the relationship between daily practice and meditation and the study of the scriptures and how you have found their working together in, in assisting your growth. Well, first you get the information. That you get from the scriptures. Then you try and remember it. Then you try and practice it. And then you look it up again when you've forgotten. <laughs> and then after having practiced it, then you evaluate whether you've actually made any headway. You look at your hindrances and see whether they've become any smaller. And the hindrances which I try to bring out are a, a working ground, which in Pali is called a kamatana. It's a working ground in everyday life, supported by our meditation practice, which helps us automatically. If meditation does not help us to live more harmoniously, and more peacefully with ourselves and our surroundings, it hasn't worked. Either we haven't really got in there yet, or we need to do something entirely different. But meditation changes our inner being where we can actually have our life from morning to night run far more smoothly. So the scriptures are an information system. They give the necessary information. Unfortunately, they're repetitive, and so most people do not have the patience to read and study them. But they are interesting. Does that answer your question? Somewhat. Uh, What's left? practicing for some time and I, I think that if one meditates that the benefits of that are, are obvious for at least they are for me but I'm at a point where I'm curious more than anything about the scriptures and what they have to say and after sitting for some time um, you know, I, I'm curious about where to study and, and what, how you have found that in your years of working with it 
I, mean, I, I understand what you said. It's pretty straightforward. But I'm, I'm really, I guess my question is, is, does one really need to study scriptures? To right. Now we're getting to the real question. Um, <laughs> it would never have occurred to me to meditate without knowing the scriptures. I have always done both. would never have occurred to me. Um, the Buddha said, Pariyati Pati Pati. Pariyati is study, Pati Pati is practice. <coughs> study and practice, both together. And neither putting emphasis on one or the other more, but a totally balanced path. Now, with the scriptures, the Pali Canon, studying that must not be understood as an intellectual enterprise. It can be done that way. And it has produced chairs at universities, <laughs> and, and numbers of scholars who know the things backward but that isn't the uh, aim or the cause or the, the, uh, the reason for, this, for studying the scriptures that's a totally different situation that is a scholarly attempt at understanding something which is interesting and when you say curiosity that would sound that it would go in that direction. But that's not the way we, I, study the scriptures. When I read the discourse on the five hindrances, which is in the Anguttara Nikaya, in the numerical sayings, in the Book of the Five, and it's about this short, then I check to find them. And I check all the antidotes, how to use them. And I never read anything else until I've got that totally remembered and am completely conversant with practicing that. And then the next one. And then I might read several where I can't seem to feel that that creates practice. So I wait till I find one which says, aha. Uh -huh. This is a purification. So then, use that again. So there are um, an incentive to practice exactly according to the way the Buddha practiced himself. And since he had the um, pathway to enlightenment and was able to verbalize it in such exact detail, and in such precision, it is a very satisfying way of practicing. Does that answer that? Okay. Yes. I find it really interesting what you're saying because uh, Zen is uh, kind of the, I, I don't know, I, I, I guess being devoted up to the kind of stupid. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> well, well, I mean, because I think that we don't, we don't pay much attention at all to uh, reading scriptures and so forth. We just do it, and we don't know what mm. that's supposed to do it. And, 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 and it's just, it's really confusing to me because I uh, feel like there probably are different paths, and you're talking about one kind of path, 
and uh, there probably are numbers of different kinds of talent. And, and I think that what you're doing is talking about the one that you know. Oh, that's the only one yeah. I can talk about. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, I, and I think that um, and, and at the same time, I feel like it's really instructive for us because I don't think we have paid enough attention to really knowing the, the cognition part of things. Mm. And so I'm, I'm really interested to see how we here could add something that was useful to our practice. Because our teacher is very straight, only do it. Just understand yourself and help other people and, and just yeah. it's kind of a no bullshit we hope that we have the same no bullshit approach. I know what you mean. Yeah. Is that, all right, we've been doing that a while, and now <laughs> some of us are, are interested in, in, and it's not just curiosity, it's like we want to mm. know that we're not just wasting the time that we're doing, going off on some I fully understand what you're saying. Uh, he did use the word curious. Yeah, that's why I referred to it. Um, I think it's helpful. Oh, yes, I know. Um, I think it would be great to ha use the Pali Canon for the instruction. Um, in the time when Zen first arose, it was a reaction to the constant um, quibbling and the constant uh, resurrection about what did the Buddha say, what didn't he say, what did he mean, what didn't he mean, constant thinking, 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 and then the Zen master said, stop thinking, do it. And it is, was a real reaction to that. And we, um, in the Theravadan tradition, it is quite often still possible to find sectors where the practice suffers immensely because the study is put forward. Now, for a Westerner, I don't think that happens because why do we do this? I mean, we're not doing this to learn something new. We're doing this in order to change ourselves. So we use the study and the practice together. The, um, as I say, the Pali Canon is totally available in English. Some of it is 100-year-old English <laughs> and not so wonderful. Um, but some of it is brand new translated. The Digha Nikaya, which is a long discourses, is newly translated by Maurice Walsh, who is a um, professor of um, professor of German and Pali at London University, or was, he's retired now. And the book is available from Wisdom. It's a long discourses. Not all of them are interesting, but number two, the Samanapala Sutta, is considered to be the epitome of practice. However, it takes more than reading it. Now, in the next four weeks, what uh, Prem Siri was mentioning, well, I'm giving a, a meditation course, a course, a retreat, 
And we're going to take that sutta, this is the, uh, the number two sutta of the long discourses, and it's going to take me 30 evening hours to explain the discourse, which has about six or seven pages. Because it needs, every sentence practically is practicing instruction how to practice. It takes that much in order to really know what is being said. The discourse is particularly uh, important and my own teacher said, if you know no other discourse, that's the one to know. It means the fruit of spiritual practice. Samana is actually a word for monk or nun, and pala is fruit. The fruit of a monk's or nun's practice, which actually means of the fruits of spiritual practice. So that book is available from wisdom, it's not expensive, and it contains all of the long discourses, which are not that many. Then the middle-end things, the Majjhima Nikaya, is now being prepared by wisdom in a new translation, which is excellent, and should be out, who knows, with wisdom, when they're going to get it out. Yeah, maybe, maybe, in the end of the year. And I would wait with with getting the middle end thing until their new edition is out. It's an excellent translation. It's translated by Western monks. And I know know them. And uh, uh, Nana Moli, an Englishman, is the original translator. So it's all there. It's all available. And it is what the Buddha himself said. Some of it has got lost, some, of the, some things have been added, but that can easily be seen and understood because it is very clear when one sees how one person is speaking. It's very, uh, and it is not, it is also interesting, but it is, um, what it will do, I would think, for a Zen practitioner is to help to have the understood experience because you already have the experience and then you see it black and white and say this is what I experience and because of that I think what it will do to a Zen practitioner is give it a broader base for realizing what one has actually done all this time I think that would be like that I can only, I, I, from my standpoint, I can only recommend it. <laughs> yes. Many of the? Yeah? Uh-huh. Shambhala Books has a, has a collection. There you are. Right. Sati Sutta, yes. Yes, but that's in, yes, but he has translated in his own inimitable way and uh, not the way it is written in Pali. (laughs) So um, the Satipatthana Sutta, if it can be obtained from the Pali Text Society, will be 
more exact. He has done with explanation, the way he explains it. Oh, I'm sure it is. But if you want to read the way it really was written originally, one should get the Polytech Society translation. You see, if you want to know what I, how the way I understand Buddhism, you can read my books. But if you want to know how the Buddha understood Buddhism, you better read the original works. <laughs> and all of us uh, are, of course, putting in our own practice into the books.